For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is the Haunted Halloween Arizona Spotlight. It's time to light the jack-o'-lantern, turn up the radio, and sneak a few more pieces of Halloween candy. We've got a collection of seasonal stories to thrill and chill. Stay tuned to hear about earthly guardians who patrol the border of the spirit realm. Two horror movie classics that still deliver the goods, plus a visit to Poe's Haunted Palace. That and more coming up on the ninth annual Haunted Halloween Arizona Spotlight. Every year, I walk among the students at the University of Arizona to find out what's really scary. I'm Erin Thompson, and I'm studying journalism. And what's something that you think is scary? I think anything that's scary is just like something that's paranormal or something that you're not used to seeing or something that's in the news, perhaps like a clown. Any clown these days like really terrifies me. Something that's scary? Ghosts. Ghost stories. I don't really like ghost stories, so. Do uh, horror films, uh, do you like to watch them? or Hate it. Yeah. Hate it. <laughs> hate horror films. Absolutely hate horror films. And what do you think is scary this year? Definitely crippling financial debt. Is Halloween a fun time for you? Do you usually like this part of the year? I do. It allows me to scare people without being called a weirdo. How does it make you feel to be the scarer instead of the scary? Usually I'm the one getting scared. So it's a chance to fight back. Role reversal was definitely in my favor, so I'm hoping to do that again this year. Um, everything about Halloween is frightening to me. Was there a key moment when this fear maybe started for you? Did you have a bad experience as a child? Um, yes, actually not as a child. It was last year. Um, <laughs> I was at Six Flags and I cried. Where are you from? I'm from Mexico. You don't really do Halloween in Mexico so much as Day of the Dead, which is different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's way different. The Day of the Dead is mostly to remember those that uh, are gone. Uh, so you could say there is more like a religious celebration. So it's a little bit sad per se. It's uh, quite different from what you guys have here. So. Uh, well, I think for a lot of people, it is the 2016 presidential election. I think that's a fair answer to give. I think a lot of people find both candidates to be scary. <laughs> Do you have any idea how to alleviate this uh, fear? Uh, vote and get your voices heard. What's something that scares you, Cherise? Um, the future. <laughs> be more specific. Like, figuring out what to do with my life. Transforming into an appropriately bizarre Halloween avatar used to be as simple as casting a spell or sipping a potion from a mad scientist's lab. But without access to those things, how is a 21st century party-goer expected to do the trick? Vanessa Barchfield goes in search of an answer. This time of year, there are loads of shops around town that stockpile zombie or killer costumes. Tucson Thrift is not one of them. Inside these walls, Halloween's a little different. It's not like Halloween scary Halloween. It's more like character era Halloween, you know, fantasy Halloween, superhero Halloween. My name is Arlene Leith, and I own the 
Tucson thrift shop since 1979. Okay, to be clear, you can find fake blood in her store, but Leaf's not really into gore. So most people who come rummage through her racks are piecing together costumes that are fun, even whimsical. Today, customer Jack Lukens is scouring the pack shelves for something very specific. I'm looking for a headband that is ideally red, white, and blue stripes. Let me show you what we got. This year, those colors might make you think that he's dressing up as a Trump supporter or a Clinton fan. But no, don't let the red, white, and blue fool you. Lukens is dressing up as... Richie Tenenbaum, if you've ever seen the movie Royal Tenenbaums, and my partner is going to be Margot. He finds the headband section. Here we go. This is the motherload. And voila. That would be it right there. And you get the wristbands. Too easy. All right, well, I just found the rest of my costume. All right. A few aisles away, I find Mauri Urcales. Unlike Lukens, she doesn't know what she's going to dress up as. But I know I want it to be funny because last year I was Justin Bieber, so this year I want to, like, top it off, I guess. She says she does have an idea for how to recycle last year's blonde Bieber wig. She wants her dad to dress up as the Republican presidential nominee. You know, that would be pretty funny, but who knows? Do you think he'll vote Trump? No, definitely not. Definitely not. So it wouldn't be a, like a costume of support if he did dress up? No. <laughs> it would probably have a little Hillary badge on it. She wanders off, and owner Arlene Leaf tells me she has a little advice for customers like Urcales when they're looking for the perfect Halloween costume. I think they need to get in touch with their fantasies. I call it the alter ego. You know, and that could be a, char a specific character. It could be a flamboyant outfit. It could be... A cape, you know, where you're hiding. You know, I don't know. You could be anything. There is seriously a world of possibilities inside the shop. Despite that, Leaf is going to dress up as she does every year. I'm always a gypsy. Is that your inner <laughs> I think alter so. ego? Yes. A wandering soul? It is indeed. It is indeed. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Vanessa Barchfield. The sound you hear is dripping blood. This is the start of Black Sunday. Have evil spirits been dragging you down? There's a cultural tradition that dates to pre-Columbian times that is still practiced by people throughout the Americas. The curandero, or curanderas, is a special kind of healer. Next, Nancy Montoya tells the story of a couple in Mexico who have practiced the ancient art of faith and natural healing for almost half a century. And she talks with a university educator who is working to preserve these teachings. In a small village south of Hermosillo in the state of Sonora live the Montaños, Don Miguel and Doña Virginia. They are curanderos. To curar means to cure or to heal. A curandero is a spiritual or a faith healer. Their tools are prayers, plants, and faith. Doña Virginia believes a curandero's ability to heal is a gift from God, or the Creator, or Mother Earth. 
A true curandero, she says, sets no price for their services, but like the Montaños, will humbly take anything a person can offer, even if it is only gratitude. I come from three generations of traditional healers, and they all were paid in that way, in a traditional way, and they all survived. Patricia Gonzalez does indeed come from three generations of curanderos, but she doesn't live in a remote village in Mexico. She has a PhD in communications and is an associate professor at the University of Arizona's Department of Mexican-American Studies. Her book, Red Medicine, is a study of curanderos. It's powerful. It's part of it comes from a, a world we can't see sometimes because the power to heal within our hands, where does it come from? Now, Gonzalez says a curandero is not something you become. It is, instead, something you are. While a spiritual connection is what determines a true curandero, there is intense learning involved, a profound knowledge of how to use certain plants or plantas as natural medicines is a skill a curandero must learn and is handed down through the generations. But that relationship with that planta is a spiritual one because they have to know it to be in your environment, to be connected. It's really being connected to the powers of life. And the plant world is vast. And to understand these plants, is it, they're not learning it from a book. It's a, it's a relationship from their life to the life of the plant. Gonzalez says there are many kinds of curanderos. Many have specialties but all rely on a belief that there is healing to be had in the power of nature. To be a huesero, uh, a bone setter, or to be a partera, a midwife, or to do limpias, the purification ceremonies, those are things that there's part physical, but also connected to life. Curanderos treat illnesses of the body, but they also treat illnesses of the mind and the spirit. The Montaños say there is a great danger in working with what he calls those possessed by demons or evil. You can cast out the evil in a person, he says, but then that evil can enter you. But the majority of the work the Montaños and other curanderos do is to perform limpias, or cleansings, of the body and the spirit. There's thousands of ways to do a limpia. In my family, there's particular ways to do it. In another family, it may vary. It, it may vary by region. But a limpia is basically a purification um, ceremony to rebalance the person who's become charged by energy that, that doesn't belong to them. The worst energy to exercise, says Don Miguel and his wife, is evil or destructive energy. He says that in today's world, negative energy is all around us and that it takes great resolve to push it away. Once again, here's the author of Red Medicine, Patricia Gonzalez. We have hard times coming, big shifts of how we treat each other. And what our traditional ways teaches is how to be human in a natural world and how the natural world can help us be better human beings. 
I'm Nancy Montoya for Arizona Spotlight. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of this special haunted Halloween Arizona Spotlight right after this break. <laughs> Welcome back to the show. For true fans of horror, there is always a select group of classic films that are greeted with toothy smiles of appreciation and a persistent chill that runs down the spine. In the spirit of Halloween, here are two recommendations that should definitely be dug up. First, University of Arizona film professor Jennifer L. Jenkins professes her love for a masterpiece of unseen dread. Scandal, murder, insanity, suicide. The history of Hill House was ideal. It had everything I wanted. Robert Wise's 1963 black-and-white horror film, The Haunting, remains one of the eeriest mid-century experiments in terror. Its influence can be seen in old dark house films, from Night of the Living Dead to The Shining to The Blair Witch Project. The premise is simple. Four people hole up in a purportedly haunted house to investigate supernatural goings-on. Based on Shirley Jackson's 1959 novel, The Haunting of Hill House, an excellent Halloween read, by the way, Wise's film explores the effects of a bad house on the people who enter its portals. Anthropologist Dr. John Markway, played by Richard Jones, selects a team of investigators from a list of people with previous supernatural exposure. He ends up with Theo, played by Claire Bloom, a bohemian lesbian with ESP, and Eleanor Lance, played by Julie Harris, a fragile spinster who had a poltergeist experience as a child and has spent the past 10 years caring for her invalid mother. The quartet is completed by hipster Luke Sanderson, played by Russ Tamblin, heir to the Crane House, who comes along to protect the family interests. Oh, come off it, Doc. Really, the local mayor makes more sense to me. 
He claims the disturbances are caused by uh, subterranean waters or electric currents, atmospheric pressure, sunspots, earth tremors, etc. Sure. People always want to put an easy label on things, even if it's meaningless. These four are attended, only in daylight hours, by the cadaverous housekeeper who intones instructions and warnings that no one will help them. No one could. No one lives any nearer than town. No one else will come any nearer than that. In the night. In the dark. As the team's investigations progress, the supernatural elements of the house emerge. Or do they? Wise is extremely adept at suggestion through audio and visual cues. The soundscape of the film is a masterpiece in itself and works in counterpoint to the musical score to unsettle our perceptions of what we are seeing. One of the first manifestations that Eleanor and Theo experience occurs wholly through sound design. If we mute the audio, the scene reveals its melodramatic elements. With the sound restored, it is bone chilling. Are you all right? It's against the top of the door! Yet all of the audio leads to a moment of absolute silence and a close-up on a doorknob, all the more frightening because of its subtlety. Wise treats the house itself as a character in the narrative, with its own palette of lighting designs and shot selections. The house exteriors were shot using infrared film, which deepens the grayscale and makes stone and clouds look a bit like photonegatives, just a little bit off. Wise, who was nominated for an Academy Award for editing Citizen Kane, cuts between high-angle and low-angle shots to place the house and characters into a kind of visual dialogue, or argument, and to emphasize the house's presence through what are essentially point-of-view shots. As Eleanor descends into madness, or becomes one with the house, she and Theo move from friends to enemies, each criticizing the other's character. Leave me alone. Stop trying to be the center of attention, Nell. Come inside. You revolt me. Well, can't you take a joke? You're making a fool of yourself over him. Suppose I'm not, though. You'd mind terribly if you turned out to be wrong for once, wouldn't you? Oh, you poor, stupid innocent. I'd rather be innocent than like you. The final act of the film reconciles all of these differences in a distinct moment of violence. Everyone goes home, one way or another. Wise made the haunting in between West Side Story and The Sound of Music, and the film is everything those two lush technicolor extravaganzas are not. Small in scope, claustrophobic, atmospheric, and subtle. Wise had incredible range as a genre film director, and The Haunting is some of his best work. As Halloween movie fare, you are in for a treat. I'm Jennifer Jenkins for Arizona Spotlight. Next, film essayist Chris DeShiel gazes deeply into a pair of big, dark eyes that now tragically serve as gateways into anguish. My suggestion for Halloween viewing this year is a French film from 1960 called Eyes Without a Face. Now, France didn't have much of a reputation for horror films, at least not at the time, and part of the reason was that France had a fairly strict censorship then. Producer Jules Bourcon bought the rights to a lurid novel by Jean Redon 
and he offered the project to Georges Franjou, veteran writer-director who had made his name primarily in documentaries. But because of the censorship, Franjou was told to tone down the cruelty of the novel and not show very much blood. Since Franjou was an artist with an austere, methodical style, this warning actually played to his strengths. Here's the story in brief. Weak stomachs be warned. A prominent surgeon, Pierre Bersour, haunted with guilt over the car accident that disfigured his daughter Christiane, played by Edith Scobe, has his lover and assistant, Alida Valli, lure unsuspecting women to his mansion, where he removes their faces and attempts to graft them onto his daughter. Eyes Without a Face has a special style and tone that sets it apart. Franju is not very interested in fright effects or sudden shock. Rather, the mood is creepy, unsettling in a way that gets under your skin. Brasseur's doctor is determined and officious, not so much menacing as someone who is just doing what he feels he has to. The scenes with Scobe, who wears a mask sculpted into an ethereal, haunted expression, convey the sense of a completely isolated form of personal madness. Whenever Vali's character goes out in search of a new victim, we hear a jaunty little music hall theme that is more sinister than any of the usual dramatic horror music might be. Maurice Jarre wrote the music for the film. And the great veteran director of photography and visual effects man, Eugene Schuften, performs wonders with the nighttime scenes. The picture was controversial at the time, some reviewers condemning it as perverted and sick. Looking at it from today's perspective, it seems, on the contrary, very restrained. Yet, nevertheless, it taps into some potent feelings of dread. We've come to have preconceptions about horror movies, mainly that they're all about frightening the audience. That is an element here, but this picture manages to be a moving and profound art film as well. Franju himself said it best when he described the movie's subject as anguish. It's a quieter mood than horror, he said. More internal, more penetrating. The director's style is at times dryly clinical, deliberately distancing the audience from human feeling in what seems to me a bleak commentary on the perils of seeing life from a purely scientific viewpoint. The movie has some stretches that border on tedium. The scenes with the police sometimes seem a bit off. But when the picture is working, it's unforgettable. A vision of evil as self-centered indifference to suffering, rather than the usual stereotype of conscious malevolence. And the unexpectedly poignant, poetic ending is absolutely stunning. Eyes Without a Face is essential Halloween viewing. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Krista Shield. Stories of all time. 
What is the secret of Edgar Allan Poe's haunted palace? Is it a dream that takes place between the realms of good and evil, or a sad reminder that all things must submit to decay and ruin? Whatever its true meaning may be, actor Eric Schumacher chose this 177-year-old poem to be his Halloween message. The Haunted Palace by Edgar Allan Poe In the greenest of our valleys, by good angels tenanted, once a fair and stately palace, radiant palace, reared its head. In the monarch thought's dominion it stood there, Never seraph spread a pinion over fabric half so fair. Banners yellow, glorious, golden on its roof did float and flow. This, all this, was in the olden time, long ago. And every gentle air that dallied in that sweet day, along the ramparts, plumed and pallid, a winged odor went away. Wanderers in that happy valley through two luminous windows saw spirits moving musically to a lute's well-tuned law. Round about a throne where, sitting, Porphyrogen, in state his glory well-befitting, the ruler of the realm was seen. And all with pearl and ruby glowing was the fair palace door through which came flowing, 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 and sparkling evermore a troop of echoes whose sweet duty was but to sing in voices of surpassing beauty the wit and wisdom of their king. But evil things, in robes of sorrow, assailed the monarch's high estate. Ah, let us mourn, for never morrow shall dawn upon him desolate. And round about his home the glory that blushed and bloomed is but a dim-remembered story of the old time entombed. And travelers now within that valley, through the red litten windows see vast forms that move fantastically to a discordant melody. While like a ghastly rapid river through the pale door, a hideous throng rush out forever and laugh, but smile no more. The Haunted Palace was read by Eric Schumacher. Last year, Isaac Rodriguez sang to us about the difficulties of being a zombie in the world of the living. Next, he considers the ghostly side of the undead equation. Just a lost soul wandering through this life Cause I'm a ghost, ghost I'm merely a blur I'm reaching out to you But you don't seem to care Cause I'm a ghost, ghost I'm merely a blur And if I can't be seen Why does everyone stare if I'm a ghost?
going day by day through this endless void trying to find a way for me to get home and i ask the stars to show me the road so i can get far away from this world cause i'm a ghost ghost i'm merely a blur i'm reaching out to you but you don't seem to care cause i'm a ghost ghost i'm merely a blur if i can't be seen why does everyone stare if i'm a ghost Thank you for listening to the 9th Annual Haunted Halloween Arizona Spotlight. On behalf of production engineer Jim Blackwood, executive producer Peter Michaels, and contributors Vanessa, Nancy, Jennifer, Chris, Eric, Isaac, the spirit of Hill House, and all things that go bump in the Tucson night, I'm wishing everyone a very safe and extremely scary Halloween weekend. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.